Glad we got to fit that in one more time, guys. Christmas Day is one of the most anticipated, it might be the most anticipated day of the year. For some of us it is anyways. I mean, we mark it on our calendar long before we fill it up the month of December with all those other things that make our lives so busy. Uh, We look forward to it, uh, do all kinds of things to uh, celebrate and to prepare and to count down the days. We have events and pageants and gatherings and dinners and special get-togethers, all meant to just get us ready for the big day. And to make sure we don't forget, like the kids reminded us, we haul out holly, we string the lights inside the home, outside the home, we put candles in the windows, we put stockings on the fireplace and wreaths on the doors, we put up Christmas trees, we buy some of our favorite holiday snacks and our some of us bake our favorite Christmas treats. We send cards to folks. We do special things for those that are in need. It would be nearly impossible to miss the fact that Christmas Day is right around the corner. I mean, it is highly anticipated. So how in the world does it sneak up on us? I mean, I don't know about you, but I cannot believe tomorrow is Christmas Day. I've still got stuff to do. But for some reason, I have to be here this morning, and so I'll figure out how to fit it in between now and then. Um, I, I don't know if you can relate to that, but I mean, Christmas Day is on the calendar. We look forward to it, and you would think that I would know it's coming. I mean, I even changed the music I listened to about 90 days, for 90 days leading up to the day of Christmas. I should know. It's right around the corner, but... This year I have procrastinated, and I, it may be, it's not really pure procrastination. I've just had a lot on my plate, I feel like, and uh, so I've had to not to be able to do the things I needed to do for Christmas in order to take care of those other things. So, um, namely, buying Christmas presents. So this past Wednesday, we were leaving to go to my parents' house, who happened to be here this morning, headed there for, to celebrate with family up in the upstate, and uh, before we left, we still had 15 people to buy Christmas presents for. And um, so Rachel and I divided and conquered. She stayed home straight in the house and packed the kids up while I uh, ran to Harbison Boulevard the week leading up to Christmas. I know, it sounds terrible. And I I said, I've got to be in the right frame of mind. So I got myself a cup of coffee. I put a smile on. And, you know, I also deal with this burden of I know people might recognize me out there. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, we know how that preacher is. So very careful. And I'm telling you what, I knocked a lot of it out within the first few minutes of being out there shopping, maybe the first couple hours. I mean, I knocked a lot out. And then I got in the car and uh, headed to another place and on the way called some family members to figure out some ideas because I didn't even know what to buy. So I'm calling family members, where should I go? What should I look for? And uh, Rachel told me to look for a pink purse for my mother. And so I'm looking for this pink purse and um, I couldn't find it. So I said, it's not here at this store. She said, well, why don't you go to the other store? Well, I've already left where that other store was. And I said, I am not driving back down Harbison there. So I circled the parking lot. And here's this other store. And y'all, I prayed on the way. And Lord, let this pink purse be hanging up in this store. I walked in. I saw the purse aisle. And all of a sudden, like a shining star from heaven, down on this bright, beautiful pink purse. And I'm like, yes. I get up on it. And it's a Barbie purse. And I realize... (laughs) It's not quite the purse my mom was hoping to receive, but uh, so I cut the aisle and there it was, the one I had wanted. I just started clapping right in the middle of the store. I was so happy. And then I'm telling you, I was expecting a miserable experience, but I knocked it out. 
I'm telling you, just a few hours later, I was back home. We were headed to Mimi and Pop's, and I had essentially finished the entire Christmas shopping list in a matter of a couple of hours at Harbison Boulevard. And so next year, I'll try to plan a little earlier so I don't stress myself out. Um, well, you know, I, I just don't understand. We can have this highly anticipated day, but all of a sudden it catches us totally off guard, practically unexpected that Christmas is tomorrow. Truthfully, that's pretty much how the very first Christmas went. Highly anticipated, totally unexpected. For the last several weeks, we've been looking at the gifts of Christmas. We turn to Matthew's gospel where we learn about the first earthly Christmas gift givers. Matthew calls them magi. They were actually pagans from uh, the the east of Israel. And uh, they uh, see a sign in the stars that uh, a child has been born in Bethlehem who will be king or born, let's see, born king over Judah. And so they said, we've got to go to find this child so we can worship him. And so they, they travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles to find this baby just following a star. And Matthew tells us when they found the baby and they found him at a home, Uh, found him months after his birth, if not a year after his birth, found him there with his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him, and they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And for the last several weeks, we've reminded ourselves, uh, or we've, we've demonstrated ourselves that these gifts can serve as reminders. The gold reminds us of Christ's royalty. The frankincense reminds us of Christ's deity. And the myrrh reminds us of God, of Christ's humanity. So this Christ came to the world, King of kings, fully God, fully man, to take upon himself the sins of the world. Now, we established, of course, the Magi did not visit the stable. But what I would say to you today is that the very best and the first Christmas gift ever given was found in the stable, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The first and best Christmas gift given is the gift of Jesus the Messiah. So on this Christmas Eve, I want us to consider together the gift of Emmanuel. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me once again to the Gospel of Matthew. But this morning, we're going to flip back to chapter 1, uh, just in the verses preceding the uh, narrative about the Magi. And uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1. I'll read to you beginning in verse 16, and I'll read through verse uh, 23. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who's called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child, by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful this morning that we gather 
for a real purpose, for a real celebration, not over nostalgia, not over holiday gatherings, not over traditions. We gather today to celebrate that Jesus is born, that he is Lord, that he has come to save. And we thank you so much for this gift of Emmanuel. We pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would challenge and convict us. We pray that you would point each of us to the cross of Christ. We pray that you would have your way in this moment. I submit myself now to your leadership. In Jesus' name, amen. What the text reveals is that God so loved the world that he gave the world the gift of his son, Jesus, who has come to save his people from their sins. And the message that I hope that you will walk away from with this morning is that the best gift you can give and receive at Christmas is the gift of Jesus. Matthew describes how the gift of Emmanuel was highly anticipated, yet practically unexpected. But it was fully sufficient to save us from our sins. So we're going to begin by looking at this highly anticipated gift of Emmanuel. Matthew begins his gospel unlike the rest of the gospel writers. He gives us a genealogy. Now the Jews were very interested in these uh, records of descent. And we know that by experience. We've read through the scriptures. And uh, we've read books like First Chronicles where it just describes person after person. Other places in the scriptures, Genesis 5, we get this long list of people. Uh, and even in uh, the end of Ruth, Ruth 4, same thing. And these records of descent are just found all throughout the Old Testament because it's very important in the Jewish culture for religious reasons and also for legal reasons when they deal with inheritance and that kind of thing. And I think we can relate to that. I think there's been kind of a revival and uh, a new interest in uh, genealogy these days. I'm sure some of you have either bought or been given this uh, ancestry DNA or the me and 23, whatever, 23 and me. Anybody get one of those and figured out where you come from? You know, you've done that kind of test. It's a big deal. They keep advertising it to me online. I haven't bought it yet, so it must be popular. Um, but we have this desire to know where we came from, to know who we are, because we, are, because we think that'll tell us who we are. Well, Matthew wants us to know where Jesus comes from. But I don't think that his real interest is just giving us familial background of Jesus. I think that Matthew is primarily interested in Jesus' spiritual ancestry in Israel's history. He wants us to know that we are dealing with a person who comes from among the key figures of Israel's history. Some who have received specific promise and blessing from God that, uh, about their posterity, about those that come after them. And Matthew says that Jesus comes from the lineage of Abraham and of Jacob, of people like Judah. He says he comes from Ruth and from David, from Uzziah, from Hezekiah, from Josiah. And if the Jews reading that story, their eyes and imaginations are immediately just kind of light up because they recognize those names. Not only that, they know the stories. So immediately they're drawn in, and Matthew is making the point that Jesus is the focal point of all of Israel's history. All of these people have been pointing forward to Jesus. In fact, you can't understand who they are unless you can understand who comes after them. When you understand Jesus and how he fulfilled those prophecies and promises. Now, Matthew does not give us a comprehensive genealogy. And this can trip some people up because they look at other genealogies and they say, it seems like some people are missing. Remember, the history used to best be taught through memorization. So Matthew makes it memorable. 
He breaks it down into three chunks, 14 generations, another 14 generations, and another 14 generations. And it's really just a summary uh, because he leaves out some names and he uh, implies other names that are not written down. Now, it's very thorough, but it's not exhaustive. It's a summary. And he wraps up the genealogy of Christ here in verse 16 where we read, uh, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. See, it turns out that Jesus is more than just a king. He's the Christ. He is the anointed one. That's what this word Messiah means. He's the anointed one. For generation after generation, prophecy after prophecy, promises were made of one who would come, who would come to reign over the people, who would come to save God's people from their sins, one who would be anointed for the job. And so Matthew says, this is him. It's who we've been waiting for. Jesus, the Christ, is the Messiah, and he has come. Next year, I'm inviting everybody to join me in uh, chronologically reading through the Bible in an initiative, in an initiative called Consumed. Uh, we've mailed out booklets, and so many of you hopefully have received those in the mail already. Um, uh, some resources that not only carry the Bible reading plan, but also some resources to help you study the Bible in 2024. The reading plan begins January 1. So if you haven't received the booklet, you can always go online to consumed.live, or they'll have copies available here at the church in the coming week. And, uh, but it begins January 1. And the reason we're reading through chronologically is because I want you to see that there is one big story being told in the Scriptures. Now, there's a lot of stories in here, but it's really just telling one big story. And right at the very center of the story is Jesus. So at the very beginning of this book, we find the problem, the issue that leads to Jesus' coming. It's traditionally called the fall of man. There in the Garden of Eden, the serpent tempts Adam and Eve. They take the fruit. They eat of the fruit, and sin enters the world. God visits the man and the woman and the serpent there in Eden, discovers what they've done, and he judges them. He says to the man, you have sinned. This is your sin. This is your consequences. He says to the woman, you've sinned. This is your sin. This is your consequences. And he does the same thing to the serpent. But when speaking to the serpent, he actually weaves within the scriptures the first hope of the gospel that we find in all of the Bible. In Genesis 3.15, we call it the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. It says, and I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The great hope of the scriptures from the earliest pages of the Bible is that one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. Well, that, my friend, is Jesus Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the climax of Israel's history and of the history of the world. Jesus is that long-awaited snake crusher. He's the solution to our problems. Matthew makes it very clear who we're dealing with by giving us this genealogy. He makes Jesus identifiable to us. Now, I have to point out to you that in this summary genealogy, it's interesting who Jesus, I mean, who Matthew includes. You would think that he would try to make a case that Jesus comes from this perfect, pure line of people. But when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it's not a summary of all the righteous people in the world. I mean, you read problem person after problem person. You read sinner after sinner, people that have done just done the wickedest of things in this lineage of Christ. 
It's just real interesting that he's kind of included that as a part of the text. I would say the fact that they are included in the Lord's genealogy offers a lesson for us. Now, I know that uh, we're all looking forward to Christmas, and I know some of you have already had family gatherings, and as wonderful as it is, it can also be a challenge, right, to be seated with family, people that know how to push your buttons more than anybody else, people that know more of your history than anybody else, people that sometimes make it more difficult than anybody else does, and so you're sitting there with those family members, and as you deal with that, you can just think, man, I wish my family was just normal. But I have learned that everybody's normal till you get to know them. And then it turns out they're not either. So Jesus' lineage reminds us that God sovereignly works through everyday people. We tend to think that only the most righteous, the most pure, the person who's got it all together, that's the only one that is useful to God. But when you read through Matthew's begats here, In chapter 1, it demonstrates that the important ingredient for God to work is not people, it's God. So the lineage of Jesus turns our attention away from human effort and towards God's sovereignty. So the gift of Emmanuel, highly anticipated for generation after generation, they've been looking forward to it. Even still, Jesus shows up practically unexpected. Just like me anticipating Christmas, yet totally caught off guard that it's tomorrow, the nation of Israel anticipated the Messiah for generation after generation, but when he actually shows up, he's practically unexpected. I mean, first of all, we know the earthly parents, Joseph and Mary, they were not sitting by waiting, said it's probably any day now. It might be, you know, those angels might come. This might be the time. In fact, it almost sparks something of a scandal in the lives of Mary and Joseph when this happens. Verse 18 points out that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Now, I want to point out it seems a little contradictory because a little further down it calls Joseph um, husband. You know, it refers to Joseph as a husband. The betrothal process is, is much like engagement that we're used to, that idea of engagement, but it's a whole lot more serious because in order to break off the engagement, there essentially had to be a divorce. Not only that, if the person you're betrothed to dies then you would be considered a widow or a widower. Um, That's how serious the relationship was, and there's certain boundaries put around it. Number one is to keep that relationship chaste. So they didn't even allow a lot of uh, time, uh, time, extended time alone together because of just kind of protecting that moment um, and that relationship. Then all of a sudden, what happens? Mary turns up pregnant. The Gospel of Luke reveals how Mary's visited by this angel. Uh, Angel comes from God, explains to her what has happened, So Mary leaves and goes to visit her uh, relative Elizabeth in another town, and uh, she's pregnant. And, uh, you know, I'm sure this is a shocking thing to her. She's probably trying to hide a little bit. And there Elizabeth confirms to her what God has said to her through the angel. But this whole experience is very shameful. In fact, the maximum penalty that she could face for being pregnant while she's betrothed is death. But we know from Luke's account, and even from Matthew's, that what happened in Mary is a miracle. God has done something wonderful, but it could be perceived by the rest of the world as shameful. This is when we all say, I'm so glad it was Joseph, because he is such an incredible man of faith. Matthew describes Joseph's heritage. That's what we've read through in chapter 1. He was the heir, an heir to this royal throne. He had royal blood in his veins. But more than just royal blood, Joseph was a righteous man. And the text explains that he planned to 
quietly send Mary away when he discovered she was pregnant. Because he could have made a spectacle out of it. He could have publicly shamed her. He could have demanded some public divorce, made a huge ordeal about it, but he chose not to. Because, uh, and, and you think, well, Wes, if he's righteous, why did he even consider that? If he was righteous, then that's the only thing he could consider. Because the law demanded he could not marry this woman and be considered righteous if she was pregnant. In fact, it would bring shame upon himself. So it's the only option he felt like he had. But he wasn't going to make a spectacle out of it. And so he was just going to let her go quietly. And that's when God intervenes. Joseph goes to sleep, perhaps thinking about this whole situation, when an angel appears to him. Now, I, I barely remember if I have a dream. But I have never put stock in my dreams. I've never been like, I bet the meaning of that dream is this. But in this ancient Middle East culture, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the meaning that comes out of dreams. They anticipated God might speak to me through dreams. We know that happens in today's world, particularly among the Muslim culture. That's why we hear these stories of how God is speaking to people in their dreams, leading them to Christ. So here's this angel, and like the other angels in the scripture, he says, don't be afraid. But this time it's not, don't be afraid of me. It's don't be afraid to marry her. Don't be afraid of the shame. Don't be afraid of the guilt. Because he says the child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's up to something. And Mary's a part of it, and you're a part of it too. Now you have to remind yourself these events are totally unexpected. I mean, this was a dark time in Israel's history. They were an occupied people, the Roman army there, kind of a puppet king on the throne with no regard for God, no regard for David and the throne. And for 400 years, there had been silence. God's office of the prophet, he had been speaking through the office of the prophet for years and years, and then he just goes quiet. And for 400 years, it's silence. And then all of a sudden, Mary hears a rumor that her relative, Zechariah, goes into the temple to serve the Lord, and there an angel appears to Zechariah. Your barren wife is going to have a child, be the forerunner to the Messiah. Well, Zechariah was not expecting that. In fact, he demonstrates doubt, and all of a sudden he turns mute because of it. This guy probably knew the prophecies better than any of you did. Still, he was totally shocked that something was happening in this moment. Same thing for Joseph and Mary. They surely knew the prophecies, but they were not expecting the prophecy to intersect with their lives. In fact, it appears that very few people in Israel even saw this coming. When you read about Simeon and Anna in the temple, I feel like that's about it. That's about all you find of somebody in the scriptures anticipating the coming of Christ. Now, the Magi see it. They see this star and they understand what's going on. But they're foreigners. They didn't know about the prophecies. In fact, they had to seek outside help in order to find it. Herod, totally caught off guard by it. Herod turns to uh, the scribes and the priests of the people. Now, they knew the prophecy. They knew the law. And they explained, well, sure, if the Messiah is going to be born, be born there. But they weren't even interested in what was happening in Bethlehem. And now, total shock for Mary and Joseph. Nevertheless, Mary says, if God's chosen me to, in, to do this in me, let it be done. And we see the same kind of faith in Joseph. Verse 24 of uh, the text says, that um, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Everything about this situation that Joseph faced would be pushing him towards rejecting what he heard in this dream, toward abandoning Mary. It's the only right thing to do by abandoning the child. But Joseph trusted God. 
He believed God enough to obey him. And I think there's great application in that for us. Joseph trusted God enough to obey him. What about you? Do you trust God enough to obey him? I recognize that the culture is stacked against us, stacked against the faithfulness to God. The whole of our society and civilization is pushing us away from the fidelity to the truth of God's word. It's pushing us toward total immorality. We're being pushed toward spiritual compromise, towards rejection of absolute truth. We're being led down the wide road that leads to destruction. So when God calls us to be witnesses for him, and we're tempted to just kind of remain quiet, you know, I'll just witness by my actions and my attitude. I don't want to draw attention to myself. I don't want to draw questions from people I don't know how to answer. I don't want to be ridiculed for what I believe. This is the question. Am I going to trust God enough to obey him? Or when God calls us to flee from immorality, am I going to walk away from sin and towards the Lord? Or am I going to say, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Other people have done so much worse. Nobody will notice. Or I I just want to fit in. Or this is a great opportunity for me to kind of witness in the world. Do we trust God enough in that moment to obey him? Now, I know that you came here anticipating a word from the Lord with regards to the Christmas story, but maybe you didn't expect conviction today. But if God caught you off guard today, I just want to ask you, do you trust him enough to obey him? I want to invite you to do that, to trust him enough to obey him. If he's knocking on the door of your heart and he's pointing in the direction for where you need to go, if he's pressing in a place where you need to confess, then I would say just put your yes on the table for the Lord. If he's calling you to do it, trust him enough to obey him. You can. You can. First gift of Christmas was highly anticipated, yet practically unexpected. Nevertheless, the gift of Jesus to the world was fully sufficient to save God's people from their sins. I want you to notice in verse 21, the angel gives Joseph the name for the baby. Mary has the same experience described in Luke chapter 1 when the angel said to her, you shall call his name Jesus. I remember when Rachel and I, uh, uh, when she was expecting our children and we were talking about what we were going to name the kids and there was kind of, you know, big emphasis on that, of course. And it, it, she, she was easier to de- it was easier for her to decide than for me, you know, because she's like, I like that name, let's name them that. And I was like, yeah, but let's look at every combination, every possibility. I just kind of want to know every possibility before I commit to them, you know? And it's like, maybe I need to see them before I name them. I, I, I struggle with this whole thing. And the one that I really procrastinated the worst with was with Andrew. And uh, we, as a matter of fact, we had two names picked out for him, and I just couldn't settle on it. So I said, let's just wait till he's born. And when we see him, we'll know what to name him. Well, uh, what we didn't know is that uh, Andrew, the way he was positioned in the womb, that uh, Rachel was going to have to have a C-section. So when Andrew was delivered, I carried the baby up there to show to Rachel. I said, what do you think? And I don't think she remembers any of this because she was just a little bit more loopy than she had been with those other pregnancies. And I I do know that he walked out of the room named Andrew McLean, and so I don't know if she decided on that or I did. But here's Mary and Joseph. They don't even get to name their child. Jesus is the name, and it was a popular name in first century Judaism. Part of that's because it whispered of the prophecy that God will save his people. God will deliver his people. It's essentially the same name as Joshua, so I'm sure people would be like, well, let's name him Joshua because it reminds us of this great hero of the faith, but not Mary and Joseph. They named him Jesus because that's what God said to name him. But we see a few other names here in the text. There's the name given by the angel for the child, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's called Messiah. 
because he's the anointed one. He's the one who has um, been set apart for service to God to save his people. In verse 23, Matthew demonstrates how Christ's birth is a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah prophesied 700 years prior to Christ's birth what would happen, that this child would be born of a virgin. And in the prophecy, he's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the answer to the great hope of the scriptures. I mean, you think about it. This whole book, they're longing for God to come and dwell with them. Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. Then they build the tabernacle so God could come and dwell with them. And they do all these special things to make that happen. And then they, David builds the temple there so that God can be among the people. They want God with them. Well, here, God has come down in the flesh. Emmanuel, that's who Jesus is. He has come not to scare us, not to threaten us, not to punish us. Jesus has come to save us. The gift of Emmanuel is sufficient to fulfill prophecy and sufficient to save God's people. Christmas, we don't just celebrate the birth of a babe. We celebrate a Savior who has come to save us. A Savior who willingly would take upon himself our sins, die a sacrificial death, so that we might have the hope of eternal life with God. And it's easy to receive the gift. The Bible says it's a totally free gift. You receive him by grace through faith. The gift of Jesus has been highly anticipated since the beginning of history. When he finally comes, totally or practically unexpected. Nevertheless, the gift of Emmanuel is fully sufficient to save God's people from their sins. At the beginning of this message, I told you the first and greatest Christmas gift that you can give or you can receive is the gift of Jesus. The gift of Emmanuel, God with us, our Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. So the question is, have you received him? You can receive him today. I can't think of a better thing you can do at Christmas than to say yes to Jesus. I'm so glad we got to celebrate with baptism this morning. Because that's what the story of Christmas is really all about. Us going down in death for our sins and being risen up so we can live for him. Have you received him? What about this? Have you given him away? Have you shared Jesus with others? I want to challenge you. Put Jesus in the center of your celebration tomorrow, this week. Put him right in the center, not just by singing songs about him, not just reading about him, but by receiving him and by giving him away to others. That's the best way to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Go tell it on the mountain. That's the message of Christmas. Father, we thank you that we have the hope of eternal life because Jesus came. He put on flesh. He lived among us. And then he carried our sins all the way to Calvary. He suffered and died. He was buried and he resurrected. And that's why we can have hope today. Father, I pray that we would receive that hope. And I pray, Father, that we would give that hope away. Lord, let this Christmas be the best Christmas for us and those around us as we receive and share Jesus. Because that's what it's all about. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to offer a time of response. You might just need to pray with the Lord right where you are about a commitment that you need to make. Or if you need to make a decision, you want to speak to me or one of our staff, I'm going to invite you to stand. Our choir's going to sing, and as they sing, you respond. So you stand right where you are. The choir's going to sing, and you respond.